0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: The election, which is tomorrow, maybe you've already voted, but I want to get a read on this because we're getting polls almost every day, and it's pretty hard to get a read from one to the other as to what's going on. I think we pretty much know the fate of the Liberal Party in Ontario, but as to who's actually going to govern us, well, that remains to be seen. And with that in mind, uh, controversies again swirling around Rob Ford with the accusations from uh, Doug or, uh, from Doug Ford rather because of Rob Ford's widow and the, uh, the lawsuit that's been launched. There is that going to have an impact? Is this about personality or about policy as uh, people go to vote? Let's uh, bring Christo Avelis, uh, Social Science and Humanitarian Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history. He's at the University of Toronto and joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Christo. How are you doing today?
2: Good. Thanks for having me. It's been
1: about 24 hours since we got uh, a little more meat on the bones about this uh, assertion from uh, from Rob Ford's widow about the money that's going on. And uh, there's some pretty serious accusations. None of this, we need to say, of course, have been proven in court. What the accusations and the assertions are is that uh, Doug Ford is not qualified to run the company Doug Ford doesn't know how to handle money Doug Ford has been rotten to uh, to to Rob Ford's uh, widow and the kids the money that he's supposed to flow the way he hasn't it's pretty serious stuff does it actually does it filter through to to the to the persona that Doug Ford is trying to portray here as a guy who can lead the province
2: I mean I think it does I mean I think this, in many ways this is this is more of a scandal than the 407 for a lot of people. You you would think that you know one one particular issue within a family would be less important than the potential you know mass voter fraud. But in many ways, to people you know Doug you know Doug Ford it's about his personality. It's about he's a businessman. He's a guy who believes in traditional family values. He's following his late brother Rob's legacy. And in that sense, there's much more damage to him potentially at least from this story than maybe any of the other scandals, because this strikes at the core of what people think he is. You know, I think that's, that's the risk for him. Whereas, you know, it, you know, traditional scandals around political issues, I mean, that I don't think will hurt him, because I think the people who supported him don't support him for any particular policy reason necessarily, at least not a particular one, but, you know, a general understanding of what Doug Ford is.
1: Well, that's that's the thing I guess that I'm wondering. Yeah. I think a lot of voters are wondering right now, and you're I think you're bang on on that, Christo. I mean, some of the allegations about about uh, you know, some problems, of course, with the nomination processes and a number of writings. I, I don't know that that really resonates with a lot of people, except you know, inside politics types. Uh, you know, the average voter doesn't much care about that thing, I would think. But when all of a sudden you've got a guy who is supposed to be uh, you know the incarnation of Ford Nation once again with his brother's death. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, his, his ex-sister-in-law is throwing cracks into that and simply saying he's not the guy he's saying he is right now, because that's really the subtext to what she's accusing him of. you got to wonder if voters are going to have second thoughts.
2: Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that's, that's the risk. That's the risk. Again, I think, and it's maybe it's because I am a political insider type, that, you know, the 407 scandal has the potential to be much worse for, you know, our general Democratic culture. You know, are, are these conservative candidates, did they even deserve to win the nomination? Do we even know, for instance, if this data was used to help Doug Ford win the PC nomination over Christine Elliott and what was an extremely razor thin, like extremely close result? We don't know. We don't know that. So to me, that's very important. But you're right in saying that at this level, you know, when, when it's so much about he's our guy because he was the guy of the guy we liked before, who's now passed away, that hurts him. Um, will it hurt him enough? Uh, you know, will it push the, the loyal Ford voters away from the Conservatives to another party? That might be difficult. But you know, does it does it make a few of them stay home? Maybe um, uh, the undecided voters who maybe you know aren't quite sure yet does that give them a little bit more cause to either stay home or vote for the NDP or vote for the Liberals or or Greens even? Um, maybe that's the question. You know, I think right now it's happened at a pretty interesting time. It is quite close to the actual election date. But on the other hand, there's not really any other time for any other story to eclipse this one. This will be the the, the story going into voting.
1: And, and of course, the the fallout from this is, is I guess, one of the factors that we're not going to know much about until after you start counting votes, I guess, on Thursday evening. But but you've even got the Ford family, including, you know, Doug and Rob Ford's mother, who's basically slagging his uh, his ex-daughter-in-law in this situation, saying that she's an addict. Although Mrs. Ford didn't seem to think that, her, you know, Rob had that sort of peculiarity when he was uh, seen smoking crack cocaine and everything. So th- there's a lot of folks right now that are looking at this and just saying, wait a second, there's a double standard going on here. Uh, and, and the reason why I'm wondering if it's going to be so important right now is because, let's face it, there are people in outlying parts of the province right now that don't much care about Ford Nation. They're just looking at Doug Ford as a conservative leader at this stage. But Ford Nation is centered in Toronto, and that's where these accusations are from, and that's where there was a lot of love for Rob Ford. And you have to wonder uh, if those Rob Ford uh, fans and advocates are, are wondering about the brother now.
2: Well, yeah, I think you make a great point in saying that, you know, in in, in, in other parts of Ontario, Uh, this really is more, you know, the people who vote conservative vote conservative because they either are historical conservatives or they believe in some part of the platform. Um, Ford is less important there, although he is still the leader, so he's, he's obviously very important. But in the 905 and in the GTA, especially the suburban areas, where even if Ford didn't technically govern over some of those areas, you know, Ford's influence, his influence in Toronto's wider suburbia, this, uh, this railing against the downtown privileged elite—that wasn't just for people who were in the in the GTA. That was for people who you know lived in that general kind of community. And and those are the areas that matter most in this election. That when people say you know the conservatives, even though they might be losing to the NDP by one point in the polls or or tied with the NDP, are still play, play, you know poised to win a majority. That's why because they're so strong in suburbia, in the outer edges of Toronto. And that's where Ford Nation was born, and that's where Ford Nation kind of perpetuates itself. Now, you know, is it enough to, to actually cost them seats in those areas if they're winning big? Who knows? But it could it could cause damage. And, and that's a great point about, about you know, the attacks on Renata. I think that you're seeing a lot of it on social media, and you're seeing it from people within the, the, the campaign attacking her based on her substance abuse problems or based on being opportunistic. But, you know, that's a great point that, you know, the, those, those very same voices called for sympathy and understanding when when maybe some people on the on the left side of the spectrum were attacking Rob for his cocaine use and his, and his general, you know, how his substance abuse affected his performance at City Hall.
1: Well, I guess we're not going to know until Friday morning when the dust settles as to how much of an impact it's going to have. Christo, thanks as always for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Christo Avelis from the University of Toronto. Uh, Alan Carter, of course, is uh, the uh, global anchor for Five Thirty and 6 Global News, and, of course, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief joining us here, uh, getting all geared up for election night. Alan, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us today.
0: Oh, Bill, I can't believe it's almost over. It, it, It just seems like, oh or 15 years ago.
1: That <laughs> and it's been such a, a non-eventful campaign, really. I mean, you know, I, 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 no wonder. I'm glad they didn't use the campaign buses, because you guys would have just slept all the time. There's not much well, going on here, is there?
0: <laughs> it's just day after day after day, and here we go. We're down to the final strokes, last full day of campaigning.
1: Let me ask you the same thing I was talking to Christo available just a second ago, but the impact of this uh, story about about Doug Ford. Does this have legs, and is it going to have any impact at all on Toronto voters?
0: Well, I think what it will do is it probably doesn't shake any, uh, you know, previous Ford supporters loose from his side of the ledger. But what it might do is it might move more of those, you know, soft liberals who maybe have been listening to uh, Kathleen Wynne's pitch for, you know, more liberal votes to try and slow down either a Ford or Horvath majority. And of course, the reality of the situation is is a vote for the liberals is likely to help uh, secure a Ford majority. So I think, you know, if you're particularly, if you're a progressive and this is the thing that you're like, okay, well, wait a second. It turns out that maybe Mr. Ford's not a great business leader and a great family guy, like two of the key planks of his presentation about why he should be elected. And if that, is enough to make you say, "Well, I'm not going to vote Liberal. I'm going to vote NDP." That might change things in a couple of ridings, but overall, Bill, I don't think it's a huge, huge damaging blow to Ford.
1: I mean, even in the GTA, the the ridings in which the the PCs are ahead, the NDP are running second, I guess, in most of those. But have have we narrowed down the the, the too close to call number at that point, Alan?
0: Uh, well, there's a, a bunch of ridings. I've just been going through the ridings one by one and looking at our polling information, and you know, there are ridings that where you know, like Charles Sousa in Mississauga Lakeshore, for example, that's a a good riding to look at. Mr. Sousa is in tough and likely to lose. But however, he's had the endorsement of Hazel McCallion, who has said, you know, vote for him locally while voting for Ford provincially. I think Hazel might be confused. There's only one vote in Ontario. Uh, But, you know, something like that, that's a that's a riding to watch where Can the NDP take it or because all of the liberal votes go to the NDP or more likely it's leaning blue? Um, And in that case, there's a great example of a strong NDP vote, but yet a a blue win. And you're going to see that in a bunch of ridings. And I think that's what's going to put Ford past that magic number. Of sixty
1: three seats, I just happened to be in that riding over the weekend. In fact, and I know that signs don't vote. I mean, that's that's one of the the mantras of political campaigns. But boy, there's a lot of conservative signs in the area in which I was, anyway.
0: Certainly, you would have to think that the conservative is running strong. And if Mister. Souza does poll well and the NDP poll well, well, there's your split and there's your conservative win.
1: Uh, And that may well be the case, and I guess in a lot of the GTA writings right now. And that's really what it comes down to. I guess the the, the consistent thing we have to talk about here is I don't know, the last number of governments that have actually won power and won majority governments, you've got to win the GTA 905, and and that's where the, the PCs actually seem to be strongest.
0: Well, you have to, yeah, you have to win the 905 more so than the 416. You have to kind of really sweep the 905 and maybe pick off a couple of seats in the actual urban core. So the Conservatives are unlikely to get much of anything in the city of Toronto. By the end of the night on Thursday, by Friday morning, I suspect you're going to see a pretty orange city of Toronto, maybe a red dot here or there It'll still left, maybe St. Paul's, maybe even Kathleen Wynne holds on. But mostly, by and large, it'll be orange, and then becomes the big question, does Scarborough go blue? Does Brampton go orange? You know, if, if Scarborough goes NDP and all of Brampton goes NDP, and then the NDP managed to pick up things like Bay of Quinte out in the Belleville area, you know, Todd Smith is in there and he's likely to win. But, you know, if in this last couple of days suddenly every progressive voter decides, no, I'm voting NDP, well, you know, we could, there is still a path to minority government for Horvath in the offing just beginning to look like it's getting further and further out of reach.
1: With that in mind, uh, how realistic is it to suggest that there could be a coalition? Or have those talks already taken place? I mean, we've seen this this act before, Alan, back in the, the David Peterson, Bob Ray days, and when they decided to, to form a coalition that lasted for a couple of years that basically got Frank Miller out of office.
0: Yeah, no, so that is absolutely a possibility. You could have a result, uh, you know, just blue-skying it. Again, 63 is your magic number for for a majority. So Mr. Ford will get maybe 59, 60 seats, let's say, and then the rest are split between the NDP and the Liberals. Well, of course, the NDP and the Liberals combined have a majority. And what would happen in that case is that the premier is the premier until she's not the premier. So the first person to go to the lieutenant governor has got to be Kathleen Wynne. Now, if she's in third place, she can't go and make a play and say, I want to lead. That's, that's impossible. The LG will never go for it. But if there is a possibility that she could go to the lieutenant governor and say, here's a, here's the signatures of all the liberal MPPs and all the NDP MPPs, all saying that they plan to vote all together as a single block with Ms. Horvath as the leader. We could have a situation where Doug Ford wins the most seats and never even gets a chance to form government.
1: Which is is vaguely reminiscent of how we won the, ma- the leadership in the first place. I uh, didn't actually win the popular vote. Didn't win yeah. the most ridings, but ended up with the calculations that they used to get this. I, I got to ask you about Kathleen Wynne, uh, and I know you've talked about this on the program. You and Far have discussed this, and it's going to be a discussion tomorrow night during the, the vote count as well, Alan. What about Kathleen Wynne's future? I mean, we know that they're not going to win. She's finally admitted that uh, with the comments she made last weekend. Uh, there's some possibility she may not even win her seat. Uh, there are some rumors that suggest they may not even have party status after the votes are counted. Uh, does she step down tomorrow night if, if it all happens that way, if the worst-case scenario develops?
0: Well, I think that either way she will step down as party leader in her speech tonight. Uh, tomorrow night. I think she's pretty much, by and large, done that um, You know, by saying, I'm not going to be premier. However, there's a couple of different wrinkles here, Bill. Um, if she does win her seat—now, if she doesn't win her seat— it's good night and goodbye and thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be heading to the exits. But if she wins her seat, and it looks like the Liberals are, like you say, in top and, you know, may not even make official party status, which is eight seats. So uh, let's just game this out. The Liberals win eight seats. And Kathleen Wynne is one of them. And she can't be leader anymore. So she's not leader. But she can't resign her seat. Because that would force a Uh by-election, and there's no way in the world that the liberals are going to take that chance that they might lose that seat and then drop themselves out of official party uh, status. So you can see a a scenario where Kathleen Wynne may serve a a substantial amount of time as an MPP in the House but not be the liberal leader.
1: Well, and, and Paul Martin did that, of course, after the 2006 election. I mean, he stepped down as leader, but it, I, what, the, about a year and a half, I think, before they actually had a vote for a new leader. And he stayed in the House, although, you know, whether or not he showed up for a lot of the votes was was inconsequential. Uh, it's all fodder for us, I guess, to talk about tomorrow night as we start counting the votes. And, and uh, we're glad to acknowledge, of course, that you and, and others from the, the global team are going to be part of our coverage here on CHML. We look forward to those discussions. Thanks so much for this today, Alan.
0: It's going to be fun tomorrow. Put on your protective headgear, Bill.
1: Yeah, exactly, and get the coffee going. It's going to be a long one, I think, too. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thanks, Bill.
1: Alan Carter, of course, anchor of Global News 530 and 6 and uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: We uh, told you that uh, the G7 is uh, getting underway later on this week in Quebec. It will be the first face-to-face meeting that Justin Trudeau has had with Donald Trump since the tariff, the steel tariffs and aluminum tariffs, were instituted. 25% tariff on steel, 10% on aluminum, which is going to have an impact on on the Hamilton economy. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has written a letter, uh, along with the mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, another great steel city here in Ontario, uh, expressing concern. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is actually overseas right now on business in London, but uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to bring us uh, up to speed on that. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
3: Uh, My pleasure, Bill.
1: I, I know that you're over there on business so with the, the Intelligent Cities uh, competition that's going on, and, and, and that's front of center, but also, obviously, the news about uh, what happened with the tariffs the other day uh, has motivated you to write a letter. Maybe you could talk to us about that, the contents of the letter and where you've sent that.
3: Yeah, I think we've sent it to uh, to uh, impacted mayors uh, across the border in the United States. Uh, there are a number of them in uh, you know, states that... Uh, Uh, that are uh, uh, impacted by the steel trade directly, and we put uh, specific numbers in there in terms of what their uh, their impacts are going to be. We already know that they already have concern, and we just want to reinforce the notion that uh, the tariffs that uh, are being uh, levied against steel in in Hamilton or Canadian steel is uh, going to impact them significantly, not only from a consumer cost uh, perspective, but from a, a direct trade perspective, uh, in terms of the, the amount of steel they take into their communities as a result of the uh, ongoing balanced trade relationship on steel between the uh, United States and, uh, and Canada. So we wanted to make sure that uh, we reached out to the mayors uh, in those cities at our level. And uh, I know that uh, that the province has continued to uh, meet with uh, governors in the, in the United States and the, and the prime minister has continued to work with senators and uh, other legislators, including the uh, the president, of course. So we want to make sure that everyone gets their voices heard in this process, and I, I suspect that uh, the voices in the United States are going to are getting louder, and uh, and are questioning the rationale behind this uh, tariff idea. And uh, I think that's a positive thing, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll persuade them to undo this uh, irrational tariff war approach that uh, isn't going to serve uh, and help anyone.
1: Does does the letter actually include that call to action to to implore the, the president to change his mind on this?
3: Yes, yeah, we uh, we actually asked them to uh, to call their local legislators, uh, legislators and governors as well as uh, as uh, you know send uh, notification to the president and, and others uh, in the the upper tiers of the government to let them know what their views are and we know that many of them share the same view that we have that this uh, tariff this idea is going to be a downward spiral that uh, doesn't really in- provide any, any protective impact from the, the real problem, which is the, uh, the, the steel dumping that's happening uh, as a result of the Chinese steel production that uh, we've had a problem with here in Canada, and, and they have as well in the United States. So if there's a trade imbalance, it's not with Canada, it's with, uh, with China.
1: Let's talk about the dialogue, Mr. Mayor. Now, I know you've had discussions with, with other Ontario mayors and, and on a broader sense with with Canadian mayors, of course, with the Association of Municipalities and the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Every time uh, those folks meet, you there, and I know you're talking the steel industry, and you've had those discussions with the federal government. Have you had much dialogue with U.S. representatives and, and some of your fellow mayors on the other side of the border?
3: Uh, not not direct dialogue. I'd have to admit. I mean, I, I think this letter was the was the way for us to go. Uh, you know, directly. We did we did have meetings uh, previously. Uh, you know, back in the the Chamber of Commerce in Toronto had a gathering of uh, of uh, uh, American uh, governors uh, that can, that came and attended and a couple of mayors. And I did have an opportunity to speak to a few of them there. And they're uh, you know they're they're question you was, know, you know, Governor of Michigan, quite frankly, was, was you know, why, why are we going down this path? He, uh, he had the same kind of convo, you know, confusion around uh, what the value of all of this tariff idea was to his state and uh, to his uh, taxpayers and to his industry. And, uh, you know, he, he shares the same concerns. So we know that those concerns are there. Uh, we just want to make sure that they, uh, they share those concerns with uh, the important decision makers in the United States.
1: It's it's good to know that uh, clearly the federal government has your back on this, and uh, the, the prime minister was quick to respond to this. And 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 what I thought was great about this was first of all his comments, which I think were pretty direct about uh, about the terrorists themselves. But he's got all party support for this uh, in in the house. Uh, Andrew Scheer, the uh, the opposition leader, uh, Rona Ambrose, former uh, interim leader of the PC party. Uh, even Jason Kenney, of course, uh, in Alberta, uh, very strongly support uh, the prime minister's stance on this. So we seem to be united on this side of the border.
3: Very much so, and I think the, uh, we have to give the the prime minister and his uh, his team uh, credit because uh, they were they were ready. They uh, they weren't uh, taking for granted that this wasn't going to happen, and that certainly was a, a view of some. Uh, they were prepared, they were ready, and they were very strategic about how they implemented uh, the tariffs they're proposing to do. And, and leaving strategically a door open for, you know, sober second thought in the United States before we actually pull the trigger on this. So, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the downward spiral in, uh, you know, in all trade wars is when retaliation elicits retaliation, which then elicits retaliation, and it's just an ongoing, you know, spiral that, uh, that really kind of devolves the entire trade scenario. The, the potential of that happening with, uh, with, between Canada and the United States is there, uh, the potential is there between the uh, the uh, European Union and the United States as well. And that could trickle down into, you know, a trade between our countries and uh, Mexico and other areas as well because of the kind of goofy imbalance that it starts to create. So uh, I really appreciate what the Prime Minister has done. He's been very clever. Uh, I, I, I read today an article from one of the the, the original negotiators of NAFTA that said, that, you know, their retaliatory response was one of the most brilliant uh, responses he's seen in terms of trade uh, trade issues, uh, you know, in, in, in fifty years, uh, I think they uh, they deserve all all party support on this, and uh, I think Canada should stand united behind our prime minister. I think they've they've taken a very progressive, strategic, and diplomatic step. And hopefully that will uh, that will resonate
1: in the United States. It's uh, interesting to note too that uh, that one of Donald Trump's uh, senior economic advisors uh, has made the media. Washington Post, I believe, carried the story uh, yesterday uh, that they advised uh, the president not to do this and to exempt Canada from these tariffs. Uh, and of course, that was overridden by we assume Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, who seemed to be the guy that's pushing the agenda here. And clearly, he's got the ear of the president in this situation. But uh, I, I, the question, I guess, a lot of folks are asking on the other side of the border is whether or not uh, the president actually understands exactly what the uh, ramifications of such a move would have, not just on this side of the border, but to those U.S. economies.
3: Well, you know, in my sense of it is uh, that he probably does, but he's uh, he's speaking to an audience that uh, we're not speaking to. He's speaking to a a kind of an isolationist uh, American audience that uh, that likes the idea of the United States. Uh, Sticking the finger in the eye of uh, their trading partners, and uh, and you know uh, under the guise of you know having that we are the cause for you know a lot of the lost employment in the United States, that uh, we are the cause for the downturn in the steel industry in the United States, or or the cause for coal not being uh, you know popular anymore, uh, you know none of which I believe is true, but I think that's the audience that uh, he is convinced has uh, that we are we are partly responsible for some of the challenges they're facing in the United States. And so, uh, you know, he's speaking to that audience. Uh, I, I think when you, uh, when you look around the world, uh, certainly the response that I've seen is that uh, this, is, this is not a, uh, a positive uh, a global trade environment that, uh, that the, uh, the world has been trying to engineer to, to, to create balance and fairness and, and, and open markets uh, right around the world so that we can actually promote uh, better jobs and better uh, opportunities for uh, all of our countries. And so it flies in the face of that. It's an isolationist approach, and uh, certainly that uh, you know, resonates in some corners, and uh, certainly is disdained by others. And I think it's exactly the wrong thing for uh, any community, any city to do: is to try and build build that wall, so to speak, and try and uh, you know to prevent all all trade from happening to see if you can just promote your own. I think that's a that's a wrong-minded step, and I don't think it's going to work.
1: We should put this in context, because I know that there, there seems to be a mindset here in our, in our city, Mr. Mayor, that while well, steel is not the, the big uh, employer that it used to be, and, and, and there's an argument to be made there. I mean, clearly, Stelco and Middle don't employ as many people as they did 25, 30 years ago, but they're producing more steel than ever. But I was rather surprised uh, that there are about 30,000 people in this city that are employed in steel industries or related industries. So this would have a huge impact on this local economy.
3: Oh no question. I mean, this is not uh, this is not a small issue. This is uh, you know you can't just look at steel production. You have to look at steel related industries, the manufacturers and the uh, the processors, producers that uh, turn that steel into uh, you know steel steel uh, girders or iron iron girders or uh, all kinds of different products. Well, they're uh, they're going to be impacted by this, and uh, that is not a small number at all. So uh, it it would have a significant effect now. You know, we could all say it's hard to measure what the impact is going to be. My my understanding is that uh, about 80% of the steel that's produced here is actually pre- uh, shipped around Canada, so it's more of a 20 20% steel impact that we're talking about. But that still proposes, a, you know, a pretty significant potential downturn if uh, if that product uh, is 25% higher in cost and no longer, uh, you know, going to be practical for American buyers to actually take into the country. So uh, you know what? It's not uh, it's not devastating, but it's important, and no one should minimize the uh, the job potential losses that might come with this if it uh, plays out unfavorably. And uh, we're going to continue to fight to ensure that we protect those jobs as uh, much as we humanly can with all of our partners, including the province and the and the federal government.
1: Mr. Mayor, I appreciate you taking the time on this and talking about this very important issue. But there is a related issue uh, that we're getting news about, and of course, that's the uh, the potential uh, Stelco land purchase Uh, of some of the lands, not just here in Hamilton, but of course in Nanticoke. Uh, There was some concern expressed by some of the folks at the city uh, because the city had plans for this. I mean this was money that was supposed to be sold. We knew that. Uh, This is good news for the pensioners and certainly it bodes well for the future of Stelco here, but the city was counting on some of that revenue, were they not?
3: Well, we're counting on the tax revenue for sure, and what we were more counting on is to, to try and avoid a, a, a kind of fire sale of that property because that that then kind of devalues the, uh, the, the not only the property but the potential opportunity. And unfortunately, it seems that that's what the province has engineered uh, through through Mr. Clark, who's been the agent for uh, for the uh, the premier on this one. Uh, they've uh, actually engineered a, a, a you know a quick sale in and out for the province. Uh, they have Still leveled off a, a full environmental guarantee, so you know the, the, the current owner doesn't have to worry about uh, you know environmental liability into the future, which uh, you know every every owner would like to have had. And we had uh, we had uh, you know provided some information to the uh, the province on how you could maximize the value for all concerned if you took a more strategic, longer term approach on this uh, on this particular site. What's happened now is that, uh, and, and this is a complete side for the city, we were told all along that we were going to be consulted, that we were, uh, our concerns were going to be at uh, least listened to and addressed, and, uh, and uh, you know, we heard crickets. We didn't hear anything from them. We kept reaching out to them, asking them about uh, information, where, where were we at in the process, only to be informed, uh, you know, late in the game, uh, you know, from late Friday that, uh, that on Monday there was going to be a transaction done and the whole thing was over. And so it's now in the hands of one provider, uh, God bless him, I don't know how we engineered it, but uh, he is now uh, you know, the singular sole owner of uh, that entire site, including the steelmaking. He's no longer a tenant. He now owns the property full stop and, and can, uh, you know, start working on some of the plans, I think, that the city had put forward about how do you maximize the value, and he's going to be the beneficiary, not necessarily the higher value that could have gone to the pensioners uh, over the long run. So I, I'm grateful that the pension is a uh, bit better than than they were before. <clears throat> I don't think it's as, as good as it could have been, and uh, and I'm uh, really disappointed that we didn't have an opportunity to uh, have more dialogue on this issue on behalf of our taxpayers, because this is Hamilton waterfront. Uh, when you think of places like Toronto or Halifax or other places, they've all had an opportunity to, to be heavily engaged in how their waterfront develops. And uh, to be shut out on this uh, is, is a terrible disappointment for you.
1: Very frustrating. Obviously, we'll pick up on this when you get back into town after your trip. Uh, thanks so much, Mr. Mayor, for the time. Greatly appreciated.
3: Okay, go. We'll see you
1: soon. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg, actually speaking to us from London, England, uh, where he's over there for the Intelligent Cities Conference that's happening. And, of course, Hamilton uh, named as one of the seven intelligent cities, best intelligent cities, most intelligent cities in the world. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: With the uh, provincial election just uh, one day away, unless you've already voted, of course, uh, tomorrow is decision day for most of Ontario voters anyway. One of the key issues, and I know it was discussed at a couple of the leadership debates, but I don't think it really got the attention that it deserves, is health care. Everybody, to paraphrase Mark Twain, everybody talks about health care, and uh, no government seems to be able to do much or want to do much about it. But the reality is is that we spend, uh, I think the latest uh, uh, numbers right now, about 47 cents out of every provincial tax dollar goes to health care. So whoever's going to be the prime the, pr- the premier of this province and inform the government has better get this right. Well, to that end, the Ontario Nurses Association have uh, written a letter to PC leader Doug Ford asking for, well, some numbers uh, about his health care plan. I know he's talked about and made promises uh, with health care, as he has with many other things, but it has not been costed, and obviously it seems his, uh, some of his commitments to what he wants to do or what he says he's going to do with health care seem to run contrary to what he's talking about on the other side about finding efficiencies in government spending. Uh, the Ontario Nurses Association, and I think everybody involved in healthcare is very concerned about this. Andy Summers is the, an RN, he is the Vice President of the uh, Ontario Nurses Association, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Randy, thank you for the time, it's good to have you with us today.
4: Yeah, thanks very much for the invite.
1: Well, let's let's get into the meat and potatoes of this, and and uh, I re- by the way, the letter is about a week old, and I guess you have not received a response from uh, Mr. Ford yet? Yeah?
4: Um, well, actually we have received a reply of sorts to this letter, uh, sort of essentially reaffirming his broad uh, commitment to health care and to hire more nurses. but as you very, very accurately stated, um his emphasis throughout the whole of the campaign has been to is to find more efficiencies and find more efficiencies, which concerns us as nurses immensely.
1: Well, he made a statement at the last debate, the Sunday debate uh, that uh, was moderated by Steve Pacon and Asher when they were talking about healthcare care. And he promised to hire lots more nurses, I think was the phrase he used when the economy gets better, which uh, was was rather nebulous. it didn 't really nail anything to the wall so i, I don 't know if you, it's kind of cold comfort to you isn 't it
4: uh, well that, and this is sort of I- exactly the concerns we have from the outset of the campaign. Um, he's talked about finding efficiencies, making very, very sweeping cuts to, to uh, public services of which, as, as you very uh, rightfully mentioned early on there, uh, funding for healthcare is the largest piece of the pie there. So we, we are very concerned that these continuing seek for efficiencies mean more and more nursing cuts.
1: Well, and it's easy. I mean, politicians of all stripes, it's not just Mr. Ford, but all of them have this propensity for making things small that they want us to think are small and large when it comes to funding announcements. But let's talk about this, because he has maintained that all he's looking for is finding 4%, 4 cents out of every tax dollar. That's not too much to ask. But you have done your homework, Andy, uh, in this letter, and you've uh, you've actually taken that, that, that mantra from Mr. Ford and uh, you've done some calculations here about what that kind of cut would actually mean. Uh, and this is rather daunting. A uh, 1% change in hospital funding is equal to about $299 million. So cutting $2.5 billion means cutting funding for hospitals by more than 8%. Uh, that's not the road we want to go down, is it?
4: Uh, well, absolutely not. We already know right now that nurses are stretched to the limit. They... There's a shortage of physicians. There's a huge shortage of nurses. We think the public see this. We see They see it every day with the hallways uh, full to the brim in the emergency rooms, uh, no long-term care beds, people in community not getting the care they need. And we already think that healthcare is underfunded as we speak. We know there's 10,000 nursing vacancies out there in the province that that employers cannot afford to fill. What is a 4% cut, even though it sounds innocuous to start with, if, if it's already with budget cuts that have come from the Liberal government, 4% on top of that is even worse.
1: Yeah, and, and these numbers are rather daunting. And, and Now, I know that uh, when we were doing some research on this a couple of years ago, Andy, uh, we determined that the, the nurse-to-patient ratio in Ontario is actually one of the worst in Canada. Is, are we still down in, at the lower echelons there?
4: Well, never mind the lower echelons. We actually are the worst patient uh, or population. We'll call it ratio to RN. Uh, so, in so we've, we've
1: hit rock bottom, then.
4: Um, we have hit rock bottom. We have gone beyond rock bottom, and we're concerned that these commitments that we're hearing about will move us even further down.
1: So, and, and that's that's the reality that we need to face, and that's what's that's what's facing us now. Uh, and, and I know that you made the point in the letter that you sent to Mr. Ford that uh, that the ONA is actually a nonpartisan organization. Uh, it is a union representing, of course, the nurses, but, I mean, you've tried to be level-headed about this, and I know that you have gone through the NDP and liberal promises. I, I know you're not impressed with the liberal platform, obviously, uh, because that's where we are today, uh, but but you're simply asking, Mr. Ford, look, and give us some numbers so that you can basically educate your membership.
4: And, and, and that's exactly the point. And to move one step further, we're actually asking not just our own membership, uh, we're asking the public to to really press uh, the progressive Conservatives to give details around what these cuts look like in healthcare care.
1: Well, and let's let's talk about that. And, and again, I, as I read the letter, I thought, well, you know to some people it may sound a little pointed and, 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 and seeking this and, and asking Mr. Ford to be a little more clear, as a matter of fact, to be clear at all. Uh, with some of the things that he's proposing at this stage but you the, we've been burned before Andy I think that's as a taxpayer that's one of the things that concerns me is is once the election's over you can't have a take back and say wait wait I to change my vote I didn't know they were going to do that uh, whomever is going to win this thing and how the corner office of Queen's Park are going to do what they're going to do and you'd like to think that we have some idea of what their plan is going to be before we actually put an X on the ballot.
4: Um, and that's exactly the point. I think the public's uh, role is to, is to bring the party in that they think will provide the best services to them. And then, of course, let's, let's us members of the public hold our politicians to their commitments. Um, I, I think we know that healthcare, as you, you know, uh, highlighted early on in your introduction, it hasn't received the attention it deserves throughout this whole uh, election uh, campaign. And we know that Canadians value publicly provided health care. Um, I don't think that the progressive conservatives have given healthcare the attention it deserves, and quite clearly, on a number of different issues, haven't costed um, haven't costed this out the way they should do.
1: Well, and, and as a taxpayer, that's one of the things that I'm concerned about is I, I feel that all three made political parties that have been involved in these debates are skating around this issue because I'm not sure that they think they even have the answers. I mean, uh, so they they don't want to talk about this to any great detail. But uh, what I want to see happen here is some transparency here because I, I don't want to get burned again. I mean, you know, we've elected governments on the promise that they're going to be efficient, uh, to use the the phrase that Mr. Ford is using but that efficiency turned out for instance in 1995 to hospital closures uh, and nurses layoffs uh, reducing the number of spots in in uh, in medical school for it to to produce doctors and and we're still bearing the the, the problems and the scars from that sort of thing uh, and and basically the, the thing that frustrated me about that as I'm sure it did with you Andy and your members of the organization is that was never part of the plan. I mean, anybody that read the Common Sense Revolution, which was supposed to be Mike Harris's roadmap for how they were going to run the province, didn't talk about doing any of that. They did that after the fact. And, and you want to make sure that you know and have an understanding what they're going to do, how they're going to pay for it, and where the money's going to go.
4: Um, and, and I'll, uh, Bill, this is exactly the concerns that we have, is that we're going to revisit some of these policies, some of these efficiencies that Mike Harris uh, raised we're going to just see them all over again. Where healthcare, you know, I don't know if we've even recovered from the Harris uh, years. I remember them personally, um, and I, I don't know if we've actually recovered. And I don't think that the healthcare system we have can can sustain any more cuts.
1: Well, and your letter talks about not just primary care, not just about hospital situations, but it talks about the much broader health care system and the delivery system, Andy, and I was was glad to hear that because you talked about long-term care beds and those sorts of facilities, which are absolutely necessary here in the province of Ontario to try to ease the pressure on hospitals. But again, it's one thing to say for a government to make a commitment to say, I'm going to make some money available for so many beds, but if you don't have staff to look after the beds... You're, you're just creating a larger problem.
4: Um, what we actually do know right now is that a large amount of nurses are, mo- are working more than one job to make ends meet. So we actually believe that we could, we could resolve a lot of this problem within Ontario if we keep our nursing graduates, you know, at home. If we give those nurses that want full-time employment full-time employment, um, we believe that with a good strategy from the government that we may be able to resolve a lot of these shortages in-house. Um, but, of course, with all these cuts, um, there will not be enough nurses, and it doesn't matter what strategy we talk about, whether it be in the community, long-term care, or within hospitals itself, um, without a good strategy, we will not have the health care we need.
1: Let, let's talk about the reality here because Mr. Ford is, is saying a couple of different things here. He's talking about finding those those efficiencies, which amounts to about $6 billion, of course. But he maintains that nobody will lose their job through that whole thing. Do you buy that?
4: It's really, really hard to swallow a comment like that and believe that there will be no impact. There is no space left. There is no efficiencies that I'm able to see as a registered nurse left. We've been cut to the bone. A cut to health care has to be a cut to services. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I mean, that's the reality. As I've talked about on this program, when governments say they're going to find efficiencies, uh, they've got three options at this stage. They can cut programs and cut program spending. Uh, They can cut staff or they can sell off properties. And and we've seen previous governments do all of those things. Uh, But nobody sits there in a campaign platform and says, yeah, I'm going to do this because that's scary stuff, right? But they can do it after the fact, and there's not a whole lot that voters can do about it then. So uh, I'd like and um, th- I'd like any one of them, whether it's Andrea Horvath or Kathleen Wynn or Mike Schreiner from the Greens or, or Doug Ford from the PC Party, to actually say, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to spend the money, or here's what we're going to cut. Like, be up front, be transparent about this, and let us make an informed decision. We're 24 hours away from the vote here, Andy, and we don't know yet.
4: Um, and, and let's be clear. Saying to the, uh, the population of Ontario, honest, we can do this, uh, we can cut costs and we can provide a better, better service, you know, it, it just, just doesn't ring true to me and, and I need more information from the Conservatives to tell me how they're going to do this before I'm happy.
1: Well, because we've seen other ideas that have been floated in the past, and I know that in the past when we've had discussions with your association and the the, the membership themselves, as a matter of fact, the frontline people, the nurses themselves, uh, this concerns about governments that will look at privatization as a way to try to save money, uh, which obviously is going to have an impact on salaries, but also on staffing. Uh, that's that's something that hasn't been discounted at this stage right now. As far as we know, everything's on the table, and, and that includes healthcare, and that includes healthcare delivery.
4: Um, the, the the good thing about this this sort of um, healthcare sector is it's full of individuals who use research. And we have research after research after research that shows that privatization costs more and delivers less. So we know that privatization is not the way forward. It doesn't improve the care, and it doesn't save a dime. Um, And it does concern me that if the conservatives get in with this promise of saving money, that in the end it will actually reduce the programmes. So I, I share your concerns.
1: Well, what's going to happen now? I, I, I'm assuming, I know that you had a response, but it's really just the same pat the talking points that Mr. Ford has given in the past, and, and obviously some of his staff have cobbled those together, and, and that's going to be their response to the Ontario Nurses Association. But uh, you've got to speak to your membership, and, and your membership are going to be voting if they haven't already voted, Andy. What, what do you tell them? How do you, how do you try to guide them? How do you try to inform them?
4: We, what we are doing right now is reaching out to our own membership and we're also uh, as you're aware um, reaching out to the public to say when those candidates bang on the door ask them very pointed questions about health care ask them about these efficiencies that they're they're talking about because nurses know what efficiencies mean and that's essentially what we're asking our members and public to do is to press the conservatives about these uh, efficiencies um, and then vote for the party that has the best healthcare platform. That's the message we're giving to everyone.
1: Because you, you have to get around the wordsmithing that goes on here. And, and you know, for, for people that have been around for a few elections now, I, I, I hope we're wise to this. Uh, for instance, because we've had other politicians in the past that have said, hey, I'm not going to fire anybody. But, you know, if you cut the funding for a hospital, for instance, the hospital has no choice. Uh, They're the ones that would actually have to lay off the nurses, but it's because of the government funding that had been cut as a result of that. So they they want the hospital administrators to be the bad people here, and they're the ones that actually made the decision. But with the lack of proper funding, uh, that comes from the top. That's not the administration themselves. So there's there's a little gamesmanship that's going on here.
4: And uh, that's exactly what we heard uh, two decades ago, is that we haven't laid anybody off. It's uh, all of the employers that are laying people off. Um, it's a semantic to some. L- let's be clear a commitment and a promise means nothing without the funding to support it. And that's the part that concerns us.
1: Well, look at it. if you were a business person and you walked into a bank and said, look, at it, I, I, I want to get some money, I want to start a business. If you don't have a business plan fully costed and said, here's where I'm going to generate money, here's where I'm going to spend money, here's where I'm going to try to, to be frugal. They're going to throw you right out and say, "Forget it. We're not. We're not interested." Yet we've got people that want to run the province right now that are kind of doing the same thing right now and just saying, "Trust me." And I'm, I'm not trying to be overly skeptical here, Andy. But I get a little nervous when a politician says, "I'm not going to tell you that right now. Just trust me."
4: Um, and and I, I do appreciate that this has engaged a lot of the uh, a lot of Ontarians. This just broad, broad pump promise. But we're trying to implore the uh, Ontarians to go beyond the promise, to test the promise, and, and to don't take people on their word. Um, get behind that and get the details, just as you're saying, Bill. I, I think that's really important.
1: And, and I know the pat answer, and I'm going to hear this. I already got a couple of notes on this one. It says, well, they're top-heavy with administration. And, and, yeah, that needs to be part of the dialogue. I understand that. And, and I know you at the ONA and, and the doctors of themselves have talked about, about that. But, but the savings that could be accrued because of, of even trying to trim some of those salaries uh, is, is not going to amount to the money that needs to go into the health care system. It, it, there's a big disconnect there.
4: Absolutely. The, you know, listen, nobody's foolish enough to say that there can't be a, a little bit of a saving here, uh, a better targeted funding there. But the, the the commitments that the progressive conservatives are making to the to the Ontarians is, is is a huge cut and can only impact the service that they receive. Um, it bothers us.
1: Uh, the numbers here uh, to the letter, I, I, and, and again, I'm just picking stuff out of here, but these are relevant and, and I think very important for people that are considering where they want to set their vote here. Uh, we talked about that 1% change in hospital funding equal to about $299 million. Uh, cutting $2.5 means cutting funding for hospitals by more than 8%. Uh, the long-term care sector, Andy, that uh, is very important to the health care system, a 1% change there in the number of beds in long-term care homes would be cutting 782 beds. That's not adding beds. That's one cut, which is a quote-unquote efficiency, cutting 782 beds, which is just, uh, well, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, that You've got people that are saying on one side that i I'm are going to improve the health care system, but they're going to do that by reducing the money that's going to go into the system.
4: And how could that make sense to anybody? It, it just, it, it's just—it's beyond belief—and—and and, and I, I think we need to keep pressing uh, the progressive conservatives to to tell us how this improves health care. Um, it's still shocking to us.
1: Is uh, they can go to the webpage to see the the information on this? Can they not?
4: Um, yes, we uh, we actually do have nursesno.org. Um, and the ona.org webpage that uh, gives this information. Well,
1: 47%, that's worth repeating, 47 cents of every Ontario tax dollar goes to health care. And... Uh, one of the people that wants to be the premier of this province by the end of this week uh, is not being very clear about uh, where they're going to spend that money and what they're going to do. All we know is efficiencies, uh, which is rather frightening, I guess. Uh, congrats to you and, and to your uh, administrative staff, to, to Vicki McKenna and yourself, Andy, and, and the rest of the members on the board for bringing this to our attention. It's a very, very important factor. And, and again, I'll reiterate, I don't think it's given the weight that it deserves in this election campaign. But uh, at least you brought it to the front burner, and we're going to make sure that people know about that when they go to mark their ballot. Thanks for this, Andy.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Andy Summers, vice president with the Ontario Nurses Association. As I say, you can go to their webpage, Google Ontario Nurses Association, uh, and there is a copy of that letter, which is available. And some of the, stum- the numbers that uh, they talk about there are rather staggering.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.